God, guys, we are back for the second episode of Barbells and Banter. Today, we brought on Josh Funk. He runs Rehab to Perform, entrepreneur, business owner, physical therapist, extraordinaire. So, Josh, thanks for popping on today. Um, kind of wanted to chat with you about a couple different things, both starting your own thing, but go ahead and give the, the listeners a little background about who you are, what you do, what you're into. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, first of all, just thanks for having me. Um, I'm Maryland, born and raised. Uh, for anybody who's listening there from out of the area, um, I have been running Rehab to Perform for about six years now. That was kind of a passion project for me that combined a lot of things that I really enjoyed or was good at growing up uh, with uh, my, honestly, just my, the way my mind works, which is largely focused on solutions. And right now we're focusing on a lot of solutions in the PT space. Uh, and I would argue just the health and wellness space overall and just really enjoying it. Yeah, and let's, it's always an interesting dynamic between the medical community and the physical therapy community. Obviously, having broken my back, there was a very glaring discrepancy between the two when I was trying to figure out what options were available to me. As a PT, like, what do you think is lacking when it comes to care for the clients that you see from medical to PT? Could probably go down a lot of different rabbit holes with that, yeah. but um, I think largely, uh, you, you know, you talk about physical therapy, and physical therapy was kind of created as kind of a side project for the medical world and physicians in particular. There's a uh, you know a way of doing PT business called a physician-owned physical therapy office, you know, POPs mm -hmm. as we, as we will often refer to them, uh, and I think when you have a medical environment that there's a significant hierarchy with regards to the professions and one seems to be the main focus and one is just kind of a secondary focus that these same levels of time and attention are not necessarily going into the service that is being provided. So we could go down a bunch of different rabbit holes with regards to KB, KPIs and just stuff that I think is valuable in terms of the metrics of what I would say is more of a modern or, you know, approach to gauging uh, effectiveness, efficiency, and really just the value add in, in that environment. But uh, I, I think there, you know, that, that, that is definitely one piece. We are a private practice, physical therapy-owned company, and we're able to control things and direct things in a certain manner in which may get missed in your big regional health networks, your outpatient hospital uh, clinics, uh, and, and definitely many of the physician-owned PT offices. Well, that and all of your PTs are athletes. Yes. They actually understand what it's like to work with an athlete through an injury, coming back from an injury, keeping you guys in good health. And it seems when people come in here, and as a personal trainer, I see it all the time. My doctor told me never to lift over 30 pounds again or never to do this. Whereas there's a big gap, I think, in maybe access to movement or athletic intelligence when it comes to certain medical practices. And it's almost staunch to me how – the physical therapy world is almost having to pick up 
and fix a lot of things that are coming out of the medical community in terms of care for somebody post-injury? Is that something you see a lot of at rehab to perform? Where are you kind of from that in an insider perspective? I would say not only the care, but I mean, we're even having to redirect narratives that mm-hmm. are commonly pushed throughout the, the medical environment. So when you have somebody who will hear certain things repetitively, whether or not it's in online spaces from certain medical professionals or through person-to-person interactions, and they're continually reinforced, but they're not updated, and they haven't progressed in 20 to 30 years. And I would say they almost align a little bit more with like this fixed mindset. Let's take, for example, like an x-ray or MRI. People can have something that is off or perceived to be abnormal and carry that around like baggage the rest of their life. And it's being shown that it's extremely detrimental to their ability to get past it or to live lives without significant limitations um, and, and be in a situation where they're able to take ownership over a situation. My ex hurts because my picture looks like this. Whereas we're realizing nowadays that that is an incomplete way of viewing the human body. The human body has a lot more complexity to it. Uh, and we need to make sure that we are providing people with up-to-date narratives on what exactly is going on in their body and the strategies, uh, you know, we'll call it like plans and process of what they're a- actually able to do and what they're mm-hmm. able to control to live a, you know, healthier, uh, more pain-free and then ideally, uh, you know, a, a life with, with less limits. And I think of when you said that, I think of someone like Matt Frazier, right? CrossFit Games broke his back and unlike me, he actually had a full fracture, was in a cast, all of that. Had he just gone off of the narrative of not being able to move, you're in a back brace, you're never going to do anything athletic again, his future would have looked drastically different had he not maybe had someone in his corner who was able to kind of talk to him about different different avenues of approach to movement, to living, to all of these things. And on the PT side of it, I think a lot of, and when I say PT, I mean personal trainers, there's a lot of times that I hope that personal trainers will refer out to someone who is a solid physical therapist, Right. When I broke my back, there was not a lot of options. My I ruptured L4, L5, S1 all the way through with a partial fracture. And they told me, you will not walk again. You will likely end up in a wheelchair. You will never have children. Uh, if at best, you'll get to swim at some point. And I was 21. I just lost my commission to the military. I had just come back from being stationed in Thailand. I boxed. Like I was, I had a nice PT score. I was, I was trucking it. But to hear that, and the physical therapist just regurgitated essentially what the doctors had said, like, oh, we might be able to get some movement back. What do you have or what do you say to the clients who come in who echo or mirror what their doctors have told you? Like, what is the process of kind of giving them a different avenue of approach to care post-injury? I think it first starts with just honestly learning as much as you can about what they're bringing. You know, yeah. they're, they're bringing a backpack to you. And the more that you can unpack this backpack, um, the better off that you are. Uh, Sometimes you will have to meet them on their side of the bridge, so to speak, Mm -hmm. when there's a very, very wide bridge in terms of what they're bringing in and what you hold and and know to be, uh, you know, best practice or most accurate. And a lot of it just comes down to the relationship development. So for us, I mean, you know, having people with tremendous emotional intelligence on top of the clinical skills that can function in the rehab and performance world uh, is extremely important. But when you have someone who's kind of been bounced around from provider to provider, they've lived in 
a world in which a, a very reductionist approach has been used, and they're under the impression that they're unable to do certain things and they will be unable to do certain things, you know, potentially for the rest of their life, uh, it can be quite challenging because you are literally trying to meet them where they're at while also challenging them a little bit on some of the things that they've literally held to be, you know, part of their identity over the past couple years, decades, you never know how long. So, um, you know, we can call it, you know, a mix of like cognitive uh, behavioral therapy. I mean, you can say motivational interviewing's involved. I mean, there's pieces of kind of all that, but there's a huge psychological aspect to it. But at the end of the day, if like we can't meet that person where they're at, develop that relationship, invest in that person, um, ideally find touch points to, you know, loosely or, and lightly challenge them um, as a part of that, then, then we're going to struggle to really, really help these people. They're going to be in a situation where they're going to continue to go along the same path that they've been walking, and they're probably only going to find themselves uh, becoming more and more limited over the course of their life. Mm. And I think from that end, there's so many people who get pushed to PT but don't know what to look for, right? So you're in it. I've been into your office a couple of different times. The way you guys approach movement and physical therapy is drastically different than any of the other offices that I've been to. And that's no shade to the other offices that I've been to. You guys just, I think, do it a little bit more with an athletic base. What would you say to somebody who has been pushed to PT but doesn't necessarily know what to look for if they don't have an R2P around them? Like, what would you say are the staples to having a solid PT get you to where you need to go? I, I think a big part of it's probably just going to be asking them what their general approach is, right? So if you hear things like a movement approach, if you hear people who uh, can explain pain more through a biopsychosocial lens, um, those are probably two big pieces, right? If you have somebody who comes in, regardless of what goes on, and they're viewing you top to bottom, on a general level first before diving into things that are a little bit more specific, they're probably taking a little bit more of a big picture and holistic viewpoint of you. And then if you have somebody that instead of focusing on structure, right, and just this structural model to explain pain, they're looking at, yes, biological factors are real, but they're also appreciating psychological and socialized factors uh, and reasons why people especially might have chronic and persistent pain. Um, I think those are two really, really big pieces uh, that people can ask. One of the things I always ask my clients when they come to me in Soldier Fit in the Frederick location, I almost deal completely with anybody who's coming back from back injury, right? I've dealt with the psychoschematics of pain. I have literally entire warm-ups built around, all right, what muscular systems can we do to support the skeletal systems? What do your movements look like? So that it's a full picture of not just your back, but like, how do you move? Do you have an anterior rotated pelvis? Do you squat correctly? Do you lead with the knees? Understanding that as a athlete, and I'm a firm believer that we are all athletes in some capacity. When you say my knees hurt, my back hurts, and if it is chronic pain, there is a way to bridge that pain threshold by slowly introducing movements that do not trigger that response, right? For me, the psychoschematics of the pain were lingering. It took about two years for me to finally work that out, and it was from a PT saying, hey, I don't, it's not that you're actually injured anymore, but you move in the way that you did when you first broke your back. So here's how we are going to address this. I wish that more people had an understanding of pain and the nuances of it. How do you introduce that idea to somebody who has never heard it before? For a lot of people, they only know pain and the physical manifestation of it. It's a great question. I think that one of the ways that you could potentially look at this 
um, is just looking at responses to pain. So when we have pain, how do we respond as a result of it? Or do we completely avoid? Mm -hmm. We could completely avoid pain, um, and that could be something in which maybe our overall capacity for movement gradually decreases. We could put ourselves in a situation where we become so sensitized to potentially exploring that movement again, where if anything, our threshold almost becomes lower. Um, you could also think of that almost as a, as a habit. So you are, you are creating a pattern where your body responds in a certain fashion as a result of you thinking that every time because you do X, Y is going to happen. When in all reality, a lot of times, um, and, and I would say majority of times, when people do have a certain pain doing something, usually it, there's some, some variance to it, right? So what I would suggest to some of these people, um, if your first time doing something bothers you, change variables. You could change angles of the movement. You could change levels of support. You could change tempo. But if all of a sudden you just changed a variable and your pain levels were different, well, there's got to be something going on there in terms of how your body is kind of taking in information mm -hmm. and gauging whether or not a response needs to go out. I think sometimes we forget that pain is a symptom and symptoms largely are going to get um, you know, expressed as a result of a collection of variables and whether or not your body perceives or to be a threat. Pain is a protective thing for us. And you can choose to put yourself in a situation where you're protecting yourself even on a conscious level beyond what your brain will do on a, all right, on a subconscious just operating system level. Um, or you can choose to kind of challenge things a little bit. We'll call it graded exposure. So, um, you know, if you, if you view the bear growling as a, as a, as a pain signal going off, ideally we, we explore that and we, we try to figure out at what points the bear is going to consistently growl at us. And if we at least explore, let's say it's 60% of our potential movement, we're at least moving 60% as opposed to like 10%. And then your body adapts and it kind of goes, oh, I, I poked the bear and he, he, didn't, he didn't roar and he didn't come after me. Okay, uh, now maybe I can do a little bit more. Maybe the next day or the next week it's 70%. Mm -hmm. And you're working on other things underneath of that threshold point and you're still getting a training effect. You're still getting all of the physical, emotional benefits of physical activity instead of having somebody that all of a sudden goes, oh, I hurt, dial down, sit, rest, and then detraining goes on and isolation and some of these things that go hand in hand with uh, a lack of physical activity. I think that's a good point. A lot of people look at pain or perceive pain as like child touching the hot stove. It's hot. I'm not going to do anything. And then they sit and then everything gets worse. And they think it's, oh, it's because I touched the hot stove. No, it's because you sat for 10 years, right? We need to we need to work on other things just because you're injured. Doesn't mean that you can't move. Doesn't mean that you can't find alternates, right? Like, Oddly enough, I jumped back into a program a couple of weeks ago and never have had knee pain before. And I was down for like two days. I was like, All right, well, I can bench. We're going to try to deadlift. That didn't work. You are able to move around. And part of my hope for the, the members here at Soldier Fit and then athletes everywhere, take a understanding and like a cognitive approach to your training. What can you do? Just because one thing's off the table doesn't mean that you can't take everything else to your repertoire to figure it out. And you spoke to changing variables. A lot of it for my deadlifts was changing my toe position that eliminated knee pain. I want people to have a little bit more self-involvement in their training program and to be a little bit more adaptive in terms of what can we take ownership of and how can we move it. And then I also see a lot of kids coming from this spectrum of being an athlete and going through injuries and saying, oh my God, I want to be a physical therapist. I want to help people. 
having been through physical therapy school, having gone through that process, owning multiple businesses, is wanting to help people enough to jump into it? Or what is your recommendation to young kids who get inspired by PT and say, oh my God, I want to be a physical therapist? Like, what do you think actually needs to be first come in terms of priorities when you think you want to apply to PT school? Ah, man, I think a, a, a big part of at least why I got tuned into healthcare was that I enjoyed physical activity. I enjoyed general habits of being healthy and, mm -hmm. and, and, and well, and enjoyed connecting with people. I did not see myself in a formal office environment. I did not, did not see myself sitting for long periods of time. Uh, I was generally better at sciences and uh, definitely had a little bit more of affinity just for kind of learning uh, whether or not it was biology, physics, chemistry, and then eventually anatomy, physiology, uh, kinesiology, some of those um, various subjects. But yeah, I, I, I think at the end of the day, that's such a challenging question because so many people think they like stuff or think that they're good at stuff. And you, you, I think you brought up, what was it? Self, self-involvement, what, what did you bring? Self-involvement, yeah. right? So some of it just requires a little bit of self-awareness about what you do bring to the table and what you're actually good at. And I think that's probably a, a much more challenging question because a lot of people struggle to figure out what they want to do. So I, 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 not to redirect that conversation, but um, it's, it's, it's very nuanced. I think at the end of the day, you have to be willing to bet on yourself. And um, ideally, honestly, you put yourself in enough different environments and hopefully you figure out not just what you're good at, but what you're actually, right, or not just what you're passionate about, but what, what you're actually good at. Too many people put all their time and energy into passions or things that they like. Like, I'm a, I'm a big believer that you should find out what you're good at because mm -hmm. it's a lot easier for 30, 40 years of your life to put passion into what you're good at instead of put passion into things that you're not good at. So, I'm sorry, I know I redirect the conversation there, but hopefully... No, that's that works. That's Part of the reason why I wanted to lead into that is for a long time after I broke my back, I was had applied and got into various chiropractor schools, and I was like, I'm going to be a chiropractor. Like, I really like this. I'm really adept at, like, body awareness. I think this is good. And then the chiropractor sat me down and was like, yeah, so really this is a business and you have to be able to think about X, Y, and Z and you need to talk about insurance. And all of a sudden it just like lost its appeal. I was like, do I actually want to do this or do I just want to help people deal with pain mitigation and injury the way I wished I would have had the conversation when I first broke my back? So that was kind of the scope that I was leading at. I think a lot of kids jump into school a lot of times because they want it. I would love to have my PhD. I just don't have the funds to go do that right now. Is the debt worth it just to have the title if you aren't willing to build your own business? Like you carved out a very intricate, nuanced niche for yourself and for R2P. I don't know of another office that does it the way that you do that. Is part of being a successful physical therapist defined by business practices for you? Is it growing? Is it being an entrepreneur? Like for yourself, how did you redefine being a physical therapist in terms of what made you happy? Gosh, another great question that I'm going to go down probably 15 different ways before coming back to uh, the conversation. That's good. But, um, I, I think getting back to the reason why PT probably was a good fit for me is because I would view my, my parents um, at the same time as like being good coaches. And I view your role as a healthcare professional as being a coach, a consultant, right? At the end of the day, uh, no matter how people like to brand it, like we're not fixers we have to make sure that we're actually providing people with beneficial education. We're connecting with them. We're finding ways to ideally empower them as a result of the relationship and things that go on between that 
that interaction. So if you take that then to kind of how I jumped into PT school, I had had good experiences with people in the space. When I got hurt, um, I, I had a really, really good relationship with my athletic trainer, my strength coach at school, and our head PT. So once again, like a positive experience, positive interaction, combined with things that I kind of recognized in myself in terms of what I was good at, led me down first to just even thinking that PT was a thing for me. Then I put myself in a commercial model and I learned things. I, you know, I learned the macro of what was going on. Yeah, there's some of the things you mentioned. And I think the first phrase that comes to mind is like administrative burden. And I think like anything, you're going to have some level of administrative burden in, in just about anything that you, you do. But um, I had looked at what I'd been exposed to at Ohio State and then what I'd been exposed to, let's say, in more of like a commercial like marketplace in, the, in a community, I was like, well, why can't I have an environment more like at Ohio State, like everywhere? Mm-hmm. Why is this not the standard? Why is it only at athletes' performance in Arizona or at athletes' performance in Florida? Like, there's got to be a way to make a more commercial model that is available to people with an athlete's mindset. Because at the end of the day, an athlete's mindset for me, and I brought it up earlier, like fixed mindset um, with people that are just thinking about structure and just focusing on band-aids and not taking ownership over some of the things that are going on with themselves with regards to health and wellness. I think of growth mindset. Like when you, when you have an athlete's mindset, you typically have a growth, growth mindset. You want to show up, you want to practice. Mm-hmm. You want to practice certain things that put you in a situation where health and wellness becomes a byproduct of the plans and process that you're putting together for for yourself. So if we take that back to business and PT school and like, you know, I mean, we could go down a bunch of different rabbit holes there with regards to finances because student loan debt is a, a tremendous issue in the PT space. I think there are certain things to consider um, that, that need to be approached differently um, with regards to just time allocation and where you need to sacrifice and what matters and yeah, I mean, I guess we can just go ahead and just toss on a couple of those. But, you know, I'm fortunate, you know, my parents weren't really like shiny things people. So for me, like, I've never really gravitated towards things. Mm-hmm. I've really just focused on like experiences and just my basic, basic needs. So when I was in graduate school, I, I worked the entire time. I didn't use student loan money to buy a car or to go on like trips throughout PT school um, or to rationalize why I didn't also need to take on multiple jobs going through PT school. Like, I had had a job since I started. I delivered the Gazette. That was my first job when I was in middle school where the papers mm-hmm. would get dropped off and we would wake up and we would put them in a bag and we would go and just take them around to, the, to our neighborhood. And that was our neighborhood, but it was our little route. And I think we, you know, made maybe like 100 bucks a week or something between me and my sister. And, you know, it was, it was pretty cool. So, um you know, that kind of started the, the ability to have school, have sports, and have a job. And the ability to take on certain things. And then um, just certain things that happened growing up, I, my capacity had to expand. So my capacity to handle more allowed me to be in that grad school environment and be in a situation where I had school. I was fortunate to play two years of professional lacrosse, which obviously helped out income-wise. I kind of started my entrepreneurial bug in terms of running camps and clinics. I lived at one of my clinicals down at my mom's, uh, you know, beach townhouse down in, uh, down in Bethany. So what was I doing after I got off my rotation? I was working at the lighthouse in the lighthouse cove as a, a server, you know, and I remember my, uh, you know, 
you, you had your taco Tuesday and you had stuff like that down there. And like, you know, you're just, you're, you're working, you're doing more than just whatever the bare minimum was. So I think that put me in a situation where, you know, I, I, I was chipping away at a lot of, a lot of my debt. I made a decision to live in a Baltimore row house that I literally looked up the other day and it only costs $120,000. I lived in a room where you could not open up the door because it would run into my bed. So I made certain choices and made certain sacrifices because of the landscape and taking in a wide variety of different factors that I, you know, it, that mattered to me. So I didn't graduate with $100,000 worth of debt. I graduated with $38,000 of debt. So it automatically put me in a situation where we're having different conversations. I'm thinking about different things because I don't have to deal with this in a long term and more of a short term. And, you know, like I said, the, when I prefaced after you answer this question, I could still go in a wide variety of different directions. But I was on a three-year plan, give or take, to pay off my loans and open up my business. I went and worked for two other people in the private practice space, and I was able to pay off my loans, buy a townhouse, and be in a situation where I could roll the dice on myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here we are. I think that's something that I feel is missing in the university headspace, right? Like I originally went to school music. That was my passion. And then I realized I really liked food and we needed to switch gears, right? So instead of being music performance, music education based, I switched into anthropology, international studies. But because of my background, we grew up relatively poor. Siblings are much younger. My capacity to work and evolve has been there since an early age in order to figure out what I needed to do to fit XYZ goal. And when we come to the athletic space or the gym space, I see a lot of times people get stuck almost in autopilot. And when you put a plan like, hey, with Reboot or with the Nutrition Challenge or anything else that we run, the first time they have a plan, like I had no idea I could get this done in 28 days. And then you see the snowball effect of I can get my debt paid off or oh shit, I can lose 20 pounds. I can deadlift 200. The spark of that is so amazingly gratifying for me because I'm like, ah, like, yes, you get it. This is going to affect your kids. Like this is a positive influence in other places. Do you have tips for kids who are maybe going into school or going to the university setting who may not have had the, the blessing that we had of having to have that ingrained early on in order to survive and thrive? Like what practices do you have in place that you think would be really helpful to that 17, 18 year old kid who's about to go to school for the first time. I remember being a freshman in high school at summer workouts and my first day there, first of all, you're freaking scared. It's football workouts. It's like 5.30 in the morning. People are yelling at you. It's a very, very different environment than obviously elementary school and middle school athletics. And there was this crazy guy with a crew cut that almost looked like the Boz. I don't know if anybody out there like remembers the Boz, but, um, he had, little little did I know, also been a bodyguard for Motley Crue. Oh so you can imagine the, the, the physicality of, of this individual. Um, but needless to say, uh, we're still really, really good friends to this day, even after he's coached me. And one of the things, and that's Curtis Belcher out there for anybody who's, uh, who's listening that is from the Frederick area, but he told me early, early on that he, <laughs> he wanted to – uh, have me write down my goals and put them on the back of my door. So what I had was a variety of different goals for academics, sports, and personal that I wrote on a 
notebook piece of paper, and it went on the back of my door, and you saw them every single day. So I think first and foremost, just being intentional about something, right? What are you actually shooting for? I think if you ask people and they never write it down, it could vary so much every single day. And sometimes you could just forget that you're working towards certain things. Like very, very few people I think can function and keep moving in a direction, at least at a young age, without some kind of clear cut um, guidance or something that they're they're shooting for, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you don't have the dartboard, like you're just throwing darts, right? And you're just throwing darts and you really have no clue where you're throwing darts. So I think at, at a younger age, I would almost view like goal setting as being a dartboard. And then you create enough habits where, you know, at this point in time, I'll do goals that are more bigger, bigger picture um, and sometimes uh, a little bit shorter term. But uh, it, it's something that I think that I'm so uh, it's been so easy for me to carve out habits that uh, I don't have to do some of the things that I did at a young age. But they, it did it, it did a lot of things for me with regards to just being reflective, um, being consistent. Uh, and then there's a certain level of accountability when you write your date, uh, you know, on the piece of paper. And let's say that year it was August 15th or whenever football workouts started. Actually, it was probably June. And then you look at the end of the summer and you're like, oh, shoot, I didn't actually get here. It's, you know, 9-1. Well, why didn't I get here? And actually taking some ownership. I didn't do X, Y, and Z instead of what I feel like we're in a situation now with a lot of young people, and I'll follow this up with something I was just reading this morning, but you have young people who are not taking as much ownership, and I, I, I'll just bring this up briefly, but the Lululemon Global Wellness Report came out recently. It was a 10-country study, and it was looking at all of the different generations, and Generation Z had the uh, lowest levels of optimism and reporting their overall mm-hmm. well-being. Now, the other thing that they also reported the low is, is the fact that they, they didn't feel, or sorry, that, that optimism and well-being was directly tied to being proactive. So in that type of environment, are we not creating uh, situations where we have people in these younger age categories who are being proactive, who are taking ownership, and are we doing too much to kind of like pull them along or push them through? So it's probably a little bit more uh, outside of the scope of what we were jumping on here today. But I just think that goes hand in hand with developing some of these habits at a young age where you're being intentional about your goals. And then you're actually taking some level of responsibility for the fact that, hey, this didn't work out and I'm the reason to blame. I think it also ties into Gen Z is the first generation that has always had a phone or a computer in their hand or had access to it. Um, we didn't have phones growing up, right? Like I didn't have something that I could scroll through. So my self-worth was not tied to what I was seeing on social media from somebody else. I do think that a big pivot point of that, and I see it with my brothers because they're 10 years younger than me. Also very gross that the youngest is 18 now, ew. Mm-hmm. Um, is their self-confidence is just so drastically different in terms of the anxiety that they feel, the symptoms that they dealt with that I I don't remember anybody my age having gone through that in high school, like senior, junior year. Like we were all angsty kids, but it was never as bad as I see it currently with a lot of my brother's siblings or my brother's friends. And I think a big part of that is there is so much information. There are so many avenues that they see people taking. Are they almost isolated by choice because they've been given the route to college? You can have this option. You can have this option. And for at least my siblings, I feel a big gap in that 
is they weren't able to figure out what they actually liked because they were presented with options A through Z and they didn't just get to focus on one. And a lot of this, I think, does trickle down into sports, and I'm sure you've seen this too, the year, the prevalence of year-round athletes all of a sudden, in like one sport year-round athletes. When we look at athleticism and how different maneuvers and different sports can aid an individual, having an off-season aiding an individual in recovery and injury prevention, do you see that there's a lack of that in terms of always having to be in one sport one season round? Yeah, and I'll just mention one thing before I dive into that. The The word uh, digital wellness comes yes. to mind, and that's something that I've only become exposed to. Uh, as So I've been a Lululemon ambassador for the past almost two years now, and they talk about that more and more and more, and I don't think that's something being talked about when it comes to young people. So right. exposure of what people see, um, some kind of appreciation for what's like reality and what's mm-hmm. not reality. Um choosing what we actually consume. give meaning to, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, not not just consume, but like give meaning to. Yeah. Like, can I look at that and, okay, be a little bit discriminative and go, that's that's garbage yeah. or like this is filtered or what? I just think there's certain things that w- without our ability to really perceive fake versus reality sometimes, and that obviously there's more variables to it, it can be extremely, extremely challenging for young people. I also think that you have a certain amount – and I hate to say this in more like affluent households where you have the bulldozer parents mm-hmm. where, hey, things might have been tough for me and my generation. And we just kind of are pushing people along. And there's a lack of failing in, in safe environments. And the mm-hmm. safest environment to fail is when you're under your parents' household. Right. But, um, you know, I, I digress. We're, um, we're in a situation now. Yeah, you have a lot of single sport athletes. Um, I think at the end of the day, you're going to continue to have parents that are going to choose that no matter how much information gets out there. Uh, I think it's a short-sighted approach to uh, skill development and a short-sighted approach to reaching at least a perceived level uh, of, 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 of being elite. Um, the literature is out there. I mean, there's really, without a shadow of a doubt at this point, that multi-sport special or multi-sport participation up until peak height velocity, which is puberty, um, is the best possible method for long-term athlete uh, participation, um, reaching the elite levels of sport. And then to be quite honest, the most important part that everybody forgets about, there's a bucket in the long-term athlete development model called active for life. So if you are doing certain things over the course of your child's lifespan that is going to lead to them being active for life, that would be the single greatest rationale for playing three, four different sports growing up and doing what they'll call just sampling. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of crazy to sit back. Like, and I'm like, thank my parents like regularly, like it was fall. Hey, it's fall. Pick a sport. I don't care what you pick. Just pick something. And if you pick, and if you pick it, you can't quit it. And if you don't want (laughs) to play it next year, then you don't have to play it next year. But guess what? Like you're picking something. So pick it, but you don't have enough people that I think are pushing physicality as a part of their culture. And I, I, I like for me, like physical activity is, is, is culture and it's my identity. And it's the reason why I just wake up in the morning. It's like, all right, well, I'm going to go get go. my physical activity in for the day. Right. And then you go about your business. It would be weird without it. And I think th- that was created through years and years and obviously of participation, exposure, positive experiences, great influences, competition, et cetera, and then having people communicate enough times, like the parallels 
between sport and life. Mm-hmm. I think it also leads to when you have multi-sport options as a child, it gives you fluidity and your ability to be malleable as an adult. If you do face an injury, okay, I can't do X, Y, and Z. I can figure out this. But for somebody who is newer to it, a lot of times I find that it is almost harder to get them to switch gears, right? So I mostly compete in powerlifting and weightlifting. They are strength-based sports. I know many powerlifters who will get hurt. Oh, they're just down. Because that's the only sport that they ever found themselves in. And it's so hard to get them like, hey, you can't do this, but we can try jujitsu. We can try maybe a hypertrophy program. What recommendations do you have for somebody who may be out of their normal wheelhouse in terms of athleticism, something they can't do, and then have to transition? Like, as a PT, what do you look for in a solid program when somebody is trying to switch things up, either by force or by decision? I think one of the first things that, that comes to mind with that whole thing that you just mentioned is just identity. And one of the benefits of multi-sport participation as well is that you're going to have a young person that probably thrives in one sport, and mm-hmm. then maybe they're not going to be the center of attention in another. Maybe they're struggling a little bit more, or maybe the dynamic with a coach is different. So when I see people, um, and it's mentioned all the time with professional athletes, who struggle with transition, right? They struggle out of the transition of their identity to then not being able to have that identity because of a wide variety of different factors, I, I find myself wondering what else that person was doing at that point in time to make sure that they had an identity that was diverse. They had different interests. Mm-hmm. They had different hobbies, that they had different people in their life that they were communicating to or surrounding themselves with that were not necessarily tied to just that particular thing. I think in our world, the, the problem that we will run into, at least with young people, is their identity becomes an injury when it's their first injury they go all right I've been playing I've been playing I've been playing oh I'm seriously hurt I might never be that again and then you're doing what you can to kind of unpack things on like a psychological level so that you can build them up to first just be able to be active because it's not that much different than the world of personal training or performance training or whatever we focus a lot on GPP, so it's general physical preparation, and then we build up into more specific preparation, and then you could get into sports-specific preparation as you go throughout the course of time. But when we are working with people initially, you know, there's not a ball in play. There's not lacrosse in play. There's not uh, anything that would identify with a particular sport. It is, hey, how do we do the basics well? So whatever the foundational movements are, for soldier fit, orange theory, crossfit, a lot of these things are very, very similar, and they mm-hmm. can be applied to whatever general physical wellness routine that they'd be doing either on their own for off-season training or after sport. So I think that's a, a, a that's just a big thing that then you get people uh, comfortable and confident uh, and confident with just variety of different movements, uh, and hopefully that leads to them being able to carry that over to other things outside of whatever sport that they're playing. It's funny when I. After I broke my back, I had always kind of run because my mom was a runner, blazing fast. And I had kind of always carried the idea of like, oh, I could probably be a good runner, but never really put any effort into it because there were other things going on in life. And then after college, once I broke my back and was on the recovery track for it, I realized I physically can't run without searing pain. Like I will make it 10 feet and not be able to see. The big thing that I noticed when I started strength training is my running was better. I was able to push far. I am so much faster now than I ever was when I ran track. 
And I was a fast kid. My 400 time was nice. I wish someone would have been like, hey, poor kid, this is actually a really good 400. You should run in high school. Because looking back, my mom's like, yeah, you should have run in college. I'm like, that would have been so much less student loans. Mom, Mm -hmm. why didn't you tell me? But we didn't know. I didn't know. When we see people transition from running or say that they're not sure about strength training, I hear it from women all the time. I don't want to get bulky. I'm worried about getting bulky. What benefits do you see to the runners who have never strength trained? That you, like, What recommendations would you give them for that? Do you see data behind it that backs strength training in the combination of those running fanatics? I'm going to oversimplify this with, Please a, do. with a car analogy. So if I have a car that has the ability to produce a certain amount of horsepower, let's draw that parallel to a human being that has the ability to generate a certain amount of force. Let's also say that those individuals, right, are not going to operate at their max force capability, right? They're going to do whatever. They're going to drive on the highway at a certain mile per hour, and that individual is going to run at a certain mile per hour. If I can take the ability of that car to go higher, and if I can take the ability of that person to generate higher forces, then them doing sub-maximal tasks should not be as taxing. Ideally, it doesn't require as much gas for me to move over here. And I'm, I'm, once again, I'm oversimplifying things, and yes, there's many variables here. But ideally, it's also not going to take me as much right, energy from my body to go over here and perform running. So if I had two runners and I had one that was strength training regularly, they were able to absorb and produce a lot of force, and this one over here that does not have those force generating and absorption capabilities, running is going to be a greater cost to that individual. They will probably not be able to run as long. They will probably not be able to run as fast. And I would argue that when we get into like training cycles, if we get on like, you know, meso, macro, all that stuff, that the amount of work that a human being is actually able to perform, which largely is correlated to their level of progress, is going to be night and day. A Mm -hmm. week of training is going to just pound the person over here that does not have as much force generating and absorption capabilities, whereas the other individual might get through the week feeling a lot more refreshed and a lot uh, more able, maybe on a even just on a mental level, to go through uh, and go into week two. So uh, it's really at this point, I mean, I hate to say it, but it would, be, it would be very silly not to incorporate some strength training, but you also do have some people that hold on to strength and maybe have a little bit more inherent capabilities. You can get into um, you know, everything from the, the, the makeup of their musculotendinous mm-hmm. uh, junctions. Um, but regardless, some level of strength training, some more important for others that, you know, it, it's going to be beneficial. It's like a, it's a no brainer at this point when I hear people and they go, well, I don't want to strength train or, uh, I, I don't like strength training. Well, guess what? You don't have to like everything that you do, but you have to see value in, in what you do. Getting back to administrative burden, like yeah. with work, like, Sometimes you just, you have to do it. It's, it's valuable. If I don't do this, I'm not going to get paid. Right. Uh, if I don't do this over here, I might not be able to run nearly as long, as fast, whatever, whatever my goals are. And this is a conversation I find myself having with a decent amount of parents who kids are in between seasons with COVID, right? There's a lot of downtime. Um, I would encourage every athlete at some point to do some strength training, particularly those that are very quick. You think wrestling, you think BJJ, 
you are in these precarious positions. If your body, tendons, ligaments, muscles are not strengthened to a certain point, your propensity to bounce back from an injury or from a str- is at nowhere near the same level as someone who is regularly putting their CNS under some sort of tension because your body's now used to it. Your ability to push hard through the week of training is different. Maybe I would don't know the precise word. I don't want to say enhanced, but better in layman's terms because you can carry more force. How many times do you find this being a conversation that you have with parents who come in with injured kids regularly about adding strength training to the repertoire? Number one thing I would tell parents, uh, and, and this might offend some, but if you're still under the belief that strength training uh, will stunt growth, you're a dinosaur. So uh, yes. there are more than enough position papers through a wide variety of different governing bodies. So this is not my opinion. This has become uh, you know, proven time and time again, but we have to stop pushing these wives' tales or these old school narratives uh, that put kids in a position where they're not doing something that can be incredibly beneficial, not just to short-term, um, but their, their long-term. When I think of training and strength training in particular at those younger ages, even before puberty, I'm thinking about building a better bucket. Mm-hmm. If my bucket is bigger, I can also deplete my bucket for a longer period of time, either a practice or we get into the various different cycles, right? If I, have the, if I have bigger potential to take on physical stress or all the other different stressors in my life, my bucket is still going to have water at some point and other people's bucket will not have water. So what we want to do in those years where we are prepubescent, pre-peak height velocity is first and foremost, you're not going to expect, expect your son or daughter to probably look that much visibly different. You will have some people that have very, very, uh, you know, gifted uh, physical mm-hmm. statures, um, and they might already start to put on put on muscle, even pre prepubescent. But that's a very, very rare uh, individual. Yes, they have certain body types um, that just make it easier for them. Um, I would argue that I have one of my siblings who just I feel like he would look at the weight room sometimes, and I'd be like, "Dude, you just like got jacked in a week? Like, what's up here?" But <laughs> it's not for everybody. So before puberty, you want to be in a situation where you are just doing a well-rounded program. You're not necessarily maxing out. It should be under supervision. Going to failure should be something that is not an extreme point of emphasis because we want to learn how to do things. We want to push ourselves. We want gradual progression. When you hit puberty, things tend to change. Um, and, and, And ideally, you know, you're doing everything that you can do. Take advantage uh, of puberty. If, if, if somebody's been training and they have a l- longer training age than another individual, uh, we can probably redline a little bit more. We can probably push the envelope and push that person to ideally discover some new barriers that ideally they didn't realize. But, um, you know, getting back to the, the initial point, like we have to stop doing our youth a disservice. It's also an incredible environment to develop just some kind of self-confidence because it's so easy for people to just do a program and improve. Mm-hmm. And you do a program and improve. And all you do is show up. You can probably not even work 100% hard. And this is not me advocating to not work hard or as hard as possible at all times. But if you just adhere to some kind of a program for time, you're going to have no choice but to improve. 100%. I agree. I think that's one of the main points I was hoping to make, mostly because on my side of the house, I deal with a lot of uh, <laughs> youth rehab in the gym. Mm-hmm. I've had 
plenty of athletes who have come to me with various injuries and were told I shouldn't lift because it is going to stunt my growth or it's going to ruin my knees for my season. Not necessarily. I would hope that the parents and the listeners who are taking part in this podcast would do your research. Look for peer-reviewed evidence. Just because your neighbor who trained in 1950 and squat heavy one time said it's bad for your kid's knees doesn't mean that that's truth. And we need to stop fanning the fa- wow words fanning the flames of misinformation when it comes to our kids because it's leading to a higher propensity of injury and long-lasting injury from what at least I've seen on the gym side. Um, what are some things that you would recommend for parents to look for who might not have an athletic background? You talk about meso-macrocycles, and most people don't know what that is. A meso is a short cycle, so generally four to six weeks. Macro is going to be eight to 12, and it's a training progression that increases velocity or force or weight, volume, depending on the goals of that individual. So that way you have a goal from day one to day 90, and it progresses, and then you reset each cycle. Based off of that, or even adding that in there, what are some things you recommend for parents when they're not sure how to help their youth athlete? I think the number one thing, and it's not going to be related to that, to be honest, is going to be to have your child do a demo class, and if they truly connect with the person that is running the class that's probably going to be a great fit because if they connect with the person, they're going to end up respecting them. They're going to end up wanting to go back because they enjoy the environment. And I think first and foremost, um, any young person going into that environment who maybe doesn't have a certain level uh, of inherent, right, intrinsic motivation uh, is going to need some, some, some kind of pull. They're going to need some kind of magnet to ideally put them in a situation where they keep coming back. Eventually, you can get to a point where maybe you're making a little bit more educated and informed decisions based on what exactly is going on in that environment. But if we're to get more young people to just enjoy and fall in love with showing up and working out on a regular basis, uh, I'm a big just relationship first person. I would say that also just mirrors our our hiring practices. I am hiring oftentimes for personality first under the expectation that hopefully from a company standpoint, we can train people the way that we want to, to make sure that on a clinical or service delivery side of things that everybody's getting what they need to. But if I um, go the opposite end uh, and I focused solely on the service or the program being delivered and not the relationship side, I probably wouldn't have a whole lot of people who keep wanting to come back because they'd be around highly intelligent maybe 4.0 type individuals um, that maybe you don't want to go have a drink with, right? So I think there's a, there's a fine line between um, delivering best uh, possible program um, and, and coming at the sacrifice of personality skills that maybe it's just, it's not going to be positive for that young person. They're not going to want to come back. They're not going to want to go and just get, you know, science dropped on them. I mean, a lot of times too, and you hate to say it, but I mean, I'm just thinking about physical therapy school, like, some of your smartest people are also like not relatable. Right. So if you're not relatable, like nobody cares how smart you are, you're not going to be effective when it comes to actually working with human beings. Well, you have to be able to translate it. You can't speak to me in doctor rhetoric and expect like your jargon at a certain level needs to be transferable to everybody on a consumer level. So big takeaways from this parents, if you are listening, switch it up, 
Let the kids have fun. Focus on relationship building. And if you have any other questions, I would point you in the direction of Dr. Josh Funk. But thank you so much for your time today. I know we went a little bit over, but I appreciate it. We'll have you on again. Guys, be sure to like, subscribe, take a listen, and share if you loved it. We'll see you next week. Thank you.